groundbreakers, leaders, advocates. The rare disease community is full of people who inspire us through innovation, research, compassion, and a relentless spirit to affect positive change. Through the Rare Champions of Hope Awards, we honor and recognize true champions for rare disease. This year, we'll be recognizing leaders who have made a significant impact in advocacy, industry, medical care, and science, as well as up-and-coming rare disease leaders. The 2021 Champions of Hope event will be held live Thursday, November 18th in Philadelphia. It will also be live streamed so people can watch virtually. To register or for more information, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Gene editing is an emerging therapeutic area that promises to correct the underlying cause of genetic diseases. Graphite Bio is readying to enroll its first patient in a phase 1-2 clinical study of its experimental gene editor, GPH-101, to correct a mutation in the beta-globin gene that drives sickle cell disease. Though the condition can manifest itself differently from Patient to patient, it can cause painful episodes due to the clumping of sickle-shaped blood cells that obstruct blood flow in small blood vessels, as well as other acute complications including stroke and infection that can contribute to early mortality in these patients. We spoke to Josh Lehrer, CEO of Graphite Bio, about the company's experimental sickle cell gene editing therapy, how it works, and what makes it a next-generation gene editor. Josh, thanks for joining us. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me here, Danny. We're going to talk about sickle cell disease, graphite bio, and the company's efforts to develop gene editing therapy to treat the condition. Let's start with sickle cell disease, though. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is it? So sickle cell disease is actually one of the more common genetic diseases. And um, what's what's um, interesting about how it developed as a genetic disease is that it was actually selected for. It's a, it's a mutation with a single misspelling in one of the most important proteins in, in, in the body, in, in one of the proteins that codes for that, that um, uh, composes um, hemoglobin to deliver oxygen to tissues and, and in red blood cells. So there's a single change a single mutation in hemoglobin, and in the carrier status, in, in people who have one copy of of, um, of the beta globin gene with this mutation and one one normal regular copy, um, those individuals are actually resistant to malaria. So this mutation has occurred several times through human evolution. It's been selected for because of of um, you know really the the um, you know competition between humans and 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 the, and the malarial parasites. Um, and um, uh, carriers have an advantage. Um, uh, for that reason, most individuals who have sickle cell disease, when, for example, two parents who are carriers have kids, um, uh, sickle cell disease is when an individual has two copies of the mutation, 
and and that occurs mostly in individuals of um, of African descent because that's where the carrier status has been selected for. And um, the the disease when two copies are inherited, what happens is that the hemoglobin protein, which normally is is soluble in the red blood cell and efficiently binds oxygen in the lungs and delivers it to tissues, that that um, that protein now has this this misspelling, this this abnormal amino acid, which is which is a sticky hydrophobic amino acid, and the sickle hemoglobin clumps together, and it damages red blood cells. It um, pokes holes in the membrane. It 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 results in red blood cells that have this very characteristic sickle shape under a microscope and um, these cells can then sludge in the blood vessels can decrease oxygen delivery to tissues and can cause um, you know many many severe symptoms um, in in individuals who have who have both copies of the of the mutation and another interesting point of background here is it was actually described as the very first molecular disease by by Linus Pauling because it's, it's, it's the first disease where we actually understood what I, what I was just going through which is you know, the, the reason at the molecular level, this single change, single mutation in the protein that causes this stickiness, you know, how that then leads to the disease and the manifestations that occur in patients. Well, how does the disease manifest itself and progress? So um, the disease is actually, has actually changed. This used to be really primarily a pediatric disease um, with, with, with really with death in, in infancy and, and children untreated die in general of infection because the blood doesn't flow well through the spleen, you lose spleen function, and then kids are at risk for overwhelming bacterial infections. Um, and in the U S and in Europe and when there, where there's, where there's access to care, um, including in, in, um, in areas that are, that are increasingly able to treat this in Africa with penicillin and with, with preventive care, kids can, you know, be brought, brought through this higher risk period and live on to adulthood. Um, but the disease doesn't stop, unfortunately, um, getting through the, 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 this sort of higher risk pediatric um, setting. Um, and, and that's because there, there's really ongoing damage to the red blood cells, which never ends. There are these two features of the disease that are called hemolysis, which means destruction of red blood cells. And that results in not enough blood cells in the, in, in the, um, in the blood vessels to deliver oxygen and, and the consequences of anemia. And then something called vasoocclusion, where these cells are damaged. They don't flow through the vessels well. They stick and they sludge and they, 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 you know, they cause backups in the, in the small blood vessels that lead to really all the tissues in the body. And that results in, in, in really two types of symptoms. One is when there's acute pileup of these abnormal red blood cells, that, that causes what's, what's causing an acute, acute pain crisis or vasoclusive episode. You can think of that almost like, like a heart attack, but it can occur in all kinds of different tissues. It can occur in bones, and it causes really excruciating pain um, and, and, um, and, and can also result in organ damage. And then separate from those acute events, there's really an ongoing um, inadequate blood delivery to tissues um, due to um, uh, not enough blood cells and to damage blood cells that causes really multiple organ dysfunction. Most devastating consequences often are in the brain, including stroke um, and, and infarcts in the brain, and then, and then resulting even in children who survive that, that um, early or high-risk period, um, uh, in general, er early mortality. So in the U.S. and Europe, the average lifespan for patients hasn't really improved in the past several decades and is, is in the range of 40 to 50 years. Now, what's the prognosis for patients with the condition today? 
So the severe form of sickle cell disease with, with really the best available care um, and, and good access to care, uh, the life expectancy is is in that range of 40 to 50 years. And um, unfortunately, al- along the way, there, there there's still a significant um, significant morbidity despite really the best available therapies. So nothing that really um, prevents these kind of acute pain episodes that are so disruptive to patients' lives that require frequent visits to the uh, hospital, prolonged hospital stays, and then, um, you know, chronic organ damage, kidney failure, increasingly heart failure, uh, lung damage um, that lead to to early death um, and, and, um, and, and um, uh, severe morbidities. The other really important um, uh, morbidity in patients, even who survive longer, is, is cognitive dysfunction, which is fairly widespread due to um, either overt strokes or chronic inadequate oxygen delivery to uh, to the brain. You've been a, a practicing cardiologist previously. You were the chief medical officer at Global Blood Therapeutics, where you led the development of Oxbrita. I, I suspect you've had a chance to understand this disease not only at a medical level but at a patient level. What's it like to live with this condition? Uh, it's a real challenge, and and you know the exposure that I've had to patients in, in training and a physician, and then at GBT, um, have you know really what what's what's motivated me to work in this area. Um, and just one 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 story or a couple stories. And one is that I, actually during my training, I spent time in the lab um, working on on how how to figure out you know the structure of different kinds of membrane proteins. I worked down the hall from uh, from Max Perutz, who actually won the Nobel Prize for solving the crystal structure of hemoglobin that explained um, how this, how it was, how it was the first molecular disease, you know, how this one change that makes hemoglobin sticky can, can cause the disease. And, you know, that was earlier in my career. And I I'd always felt that was such an amazing and elegant scientific story. And, and then also, so in other ways, so sort of tragic and appalling in that that discovery was made in, in the 1950s. And the way that 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 when I made my way to the wards and and then in, in my medical training and saw patients, the way that we were treating patients really had had barely fundamentally changed since those times. I mean, really just offering uh, essentially pain control and blood transfusions, um, and and really was a was you know a a, a group of patients who had been neglected, um, despite the fact that we knew more about this disease than almost any other disease. So that that was one of the reasons really, really we worked with a sense of urgency at Ecole Blood Therapeutics, worked with uh, worked with patients and 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 understood that, you know, this is a it's a medical problem, but it's also um, there's a lot of of of, um, of 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 systematic bias and and racial discrimination that that patients face on a really a, a daily basis that compounds the the kind of the medical aspects of, of the disease. So, you know, we learn from patients that you know, not only does the acute pain crisis, you think of a patient, you know, a kid in school or in college, you might miss a month or two months of class and have a lot of trouble catching up. Um, but in addition, um, when, when you know, in addition to not having good options for treatment, even just getting pain control, that, you know, we, we know that African-American patients are, you know, about 50% as likely to get prescribed, um, you know, um, adequate um, analgesic or pain control for the exact same diagnosis that we would hear, you know, I mean, heartbreaking stories of, of patients with, 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 a, with a huge pain attack coming on. Their first thought was, you know, was not getting to the hospital as quickly as possible. It was, you know, going into their closet, choosing their best clothes to put on, putting on makeup um, so that when they would arrive in the emergency room, they would be taken seriously and not be 
viewed with suspicion or viewed as someone there, you know, just drug seeking, but but viewed as someone who actually had a medical problem in need of in need of attention. So it's a disease that's challenging on many levels, and 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 thinking about just the the medical options available for for patients, as I mentioned. Um, there have been advances recently, which, have, which, are, which are great new options for physicians, including Oxbrita, which I worked on. Um, but there, there really is nothing that can kind of stop this disease in its tracks, from the acute pain episode to the early mortality. The only way we know of that can cure the disease actually is, is, is a transplant procedure where stem cells from a, a sibling, match sibling donor usually, often with that carrier status I was talking about earlier, the carrier status which was normal, where, where stem cells that are either normal or, 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 or you know, um, sickle trait, which is the carrier status, are, are used to replace the sickle stem cells in a patient. You mentioned that this was the, the first disease to be understood at a, a molecular level. There's a lot of therapeutic development going on today, substantial investment in new treatments and potential cures, but this was also a condition that was not long neglected for a variety of reasons. What's changed to account for all the activity we're seeing today? Um, well, I think a couple of things. I think I think one is that, um, you know, there, there's, there's, I think the, there's, there's been, you know, a, finally a recognition um, on the part of, of the pharmaceutical industry. Also, the FDA has played a big role in this. Um, uh, that you know that there's that there's both an unmet need, and that that we could make progress from a kind of you know in, in the drug development ecosystem working with regulators to um, kind of treat sickle cell in the same way that some other serious diseases have been treated with to really spur spur development. So like like cystic fibrosis, I mean using regulatory flexibility, thinking about new endpoints. That's something that we 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 worked really hard at at Global Blood Therapeutics. Um, sickle cell disease was one of the very first um, FDA meetings that was part of the patient-focused drug development effort. Um, so I think that is actually a you know part partly a success in in really um, uh, um, FDA and regulators working with industry to actually get that investment you know going that 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 had been uh, really lacking and and present in other severe diseases. The other is is I think the advent of of, of gene therapy, of, of genetic therapies um, and, and genetic approaches to have the potential to cure diseases like sickle cell disease to kind of to, to have the potential to, to extend the same kind of benefit that can result from a from a bone marrow transplant from a sibling, but but to, to start to do that with a patient's own cells. Sickle cell is, as I mentioned, one of the most common monogenic diseases. So it really is is kind of at the top of the list when you're thinking about what you would do with these these emerging gene therapy tools. Graphite Bio is developing both gene replacement therapies and gene editing therapies to address a, a range of rare diseases. How do you determine whether a gene editing therapy or a gene replacement therapy makes sense as a therapeutic strategy? Is one better than another in the case of a monogenic disease? Yeah. So, so the Graphite Bio platform and what, what what we're doing and what's a little bit what's different than other approaches. So CRISPR is very, you know, CRISPR and and, and the Cas9 nuclease um, are, of course, you know, a, a revolutionary scientific development. And 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 you can think of CRISPR as really a, a very precise pair of scissors uh, for for cutting target genes. And and it's 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 been deployed in that way for knocking out and disrupting. Um, uh, genes and, and and trying to you know improve genetic disease in that in that way. Um, what we're doing goes one step further. 
we we have an approach that that really builds on on, on you know the initial uh, way CRISPR has been used to um, to precisely uh, cut a target gene, but then to give the cell a template for um, when, when it repairs that 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 break in a target gene, and during that repair process, we can do what you what you've mentioned. We the template can provide the instructions to actually correct. Uh, a misspelling in a gene or can contain an entire replacement gene. So we've really been looking for, um, you know, areas we can make a unique clinical impact in a disease by, by instead of knocking something out, by, by you know, changing something back to normal. In sickle cell disease, because every patient with severe sickle cell disease has the exact same misspelling, the same single letter change, um, from from an from an a an a base to a t base in the DNA, we we can actually make that change back to normal by correcting the gene and leaving the normal gene um, uh, intact. Just you know, essentially changing it from sickle hemoglobin to normal adult hemoglobin. So we use a gene correction strategy in that case, and it's it's um you know it's it's a it's a higher bar. It's more difficult to directly correct the sickle globin gene and try to reach a cure that way than indirect approaches that are, for example, trying to take the brakes off the fetal form of hemoglobin and try to reinduce that, that expression. Um, but it's, it's always been viewed as really the gold standard for cure because we know that, that carriers of sickle cell disease are normal. They don't have disease. So by using gene correction, we actually now for the first time have the potential ability to change, essentially change some of the DNA level from having sickle cell disease to to having something uh, like sickle cell trait or, or even better. Your lead therapeutic candidate is GPH-101. You call this a, a next-generation gene editing therapy for sickle cell disease. What makes it next-generation? So what makes it next-generation is really this combination that was, I, I, was, I was just speaking about of, of, of using CRISPR first to cut, but then having a, delivering a template to, to the cell um, to actually have a precision repair. So the result, I mean, you, you can you can really think of it instead of cutting and knocking out a gene, think of word processor analogy, we're, it, it's more like find and replace. We're using the precision of of CRISPR, using something called an RNA guide to 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 find the target gene. So scan scan the whole genome and you know and remarkably find just that one area of the of the sickle of the sickle globin gene that has that mutation. Um, and then, um, and then use use template DNA to actually replace that misspelling and, and correct it and change it back to normal. So, what's next generation is is the fact that we're using CRISPR for uh, for gene correction um, that we can we can actually change a, a mutated gene to the complete you know the normal the normal gene and restore a completely normal biology. The first generation um, you know approaches um, and and the ones that are in the clinic and, and, and emerging. Um, very encouraging data, um, and and make a lot of sense with 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 those kinds of tools. What those are doing is, you know, with a pair of scissors, you can't actually correct the mutation, change it to normal. You can try to target other areas of the genome and essentially knock them out or get rid of them, and through that approach, try to indirectly make the situation better. So that's 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 really the the, the idea behind fetal hemoglobin induction. Our approach has been, you know, really with the idea in mind that if, if we can change things to normal, that would really be, you know, the best approach and the best outcome for patients. So walk me through the gene editing therapy, how it works, and what's the process for treating a patient? Yeah. So um, the process is, um, is, is similar to other, you know, um, gene therapy approaches using, um, using stem cells that have been 
um, you know, have been advanced in diseases like sickle cell disease or related diseases like beta thalassemia, where the first step is we, um, we, we mobilize um, the stem cells from the bone marrow of patients and, and, then, and then remove them from the patient. And then once we have those, those stem cells, these, these, these long-term stem cells are, are remarkable because they can essentially survive for the life of a patient and, and self-renew, and they can give rise to um, you know, really all the cells of the blood and immune system, including red blood cells, which, which cause the disease in the case of sickle cell disease. Then we deliver the, you know, the scissors part to um, you know, CRISPR to these cells. We create this precise incision in the cytoglobin gene. Immediately after that, we then deliver a, a, a DNA template with the correct instructions. We deliver that with a, a viral vector. That template is there just as instructions. It doesn't actually integrate into the to the cell's DNA, and then the cell's own uh, machinery corrects that 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 um, the, the sickle mutation. Um, then we 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 prepare these these stem cells. We 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 expand them, um, and um, and then. Uh, and then deliver them back into the patient before delivering them back into the patient to engraft back in the bone marrow. And, and the, the, with, with the goal that these corrected cells will produce normal red blood cells for the rest of the life of that patient, we, we need to eliminate the, the disease stem cells in the bone marrow. So that's called bone marrow conditioning. So that's, that's sort of the whole process. And when after the patient has conditioning and receives um, these edited corrected stem cells back into the bone marrow, there's a potential to then repopulate the bone marrow with completely normal stem cells and, and, and cure the disease in that manner. And I, I know it's early days, you're just preparing to begin a, a clinical trial, but what is known about the safety and efficacy of these, this approach? And is there a concern about off-target effects at all? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously this is an area we're gaining experience in. The the work that that, that has been done by others, including the, including the first generation approaches, the, the CRISPR vertex experience has been, you know, is, is very encouraging and, and and has shown durability and is really shows us that you can use CRISPR to edit stem cells, have them engraft and persist in a patient, and 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 you know and and have what looks like some significant benefits. So that that we think is actually significantly de-risking for really the whole field and in addition for our approach. Um, with with safety in mind, we, 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 did, we did design our platform to use actually an engineered version of Cas9. So it's not the standard CRISPR that was first discovered. Um, we're actually, we actually use an engineered version that is more selective and has um, in our hands 30 fold less off target effects. So very low off target rates. We then carefully characterize you know, where this off target cutting is happening. We do careful preclinical studies and animal studies to make sure that these human cells, you know, have, you know, they function, they can, they can, um, uh, you know, survive and engraft uh, in, in, in animals and, and don't lead to, you know, to, to problems, um, uh, um, you know, existing in, in these animal studies. So um, as we treat our first patients, we have, we obviously will be monitoring and getting clinical data, but we have a lot of confidence in, in, you know, in, in the, in the robustness of this approach um, and in the potential for this to be curative from what we've seen in, in human cells from patients and also in, in animal models of, of, of sickle cell disease. And what does the initial clinical trial look like? How, how big a study will it be and, and what will you be looking at? Yeah, so I mean, what's, what's really amazing about these kinds of therapeutic approaches is, is you know, is, is that, um, I mean, every single patient is almost like a, a, a clinical trial. We're, 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 we're aiming for cure. We're trying to really achieve sickle cell traits. So we're gonna learn really tremendous amount from 
from every single patient. It doesn't take a lot of patients to understand whether we can get to curative potential um, in this disease. So our initial trial um, is designed as, as 15 patients. We're beginning in adults with, with, with severe sickle cell disease. Um, and then after initial adult experience, planning on expanding into adolescence, into younger patients. Um, really the ultimate goal in, this, in, in, in sickle cell disease is to be able to treat and, 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 and cure um, children before they start having this chronic, you know, irreversible uh, organ damage and, and um, you know, irreversible damage like strokes to really prevent the progression of the disease early on. And, that, and, our, and we'll be working towards that goal uh, in this trial. And the kinds of things we'll be measuring will be, um, you know, the acute pain events that I mentioned earlier, those are, um, those are um, relatively easy to count. Not every patient uh, has those events, but we, we can enroll patients that will that have pain events and show that those pain events are you know are not happening that those resolve, um, and then um, it's relatively uh, easy to you know to, to to draw blood and really show that the red blood cells are are, are functional that we can measure hemoglobin levels or red blood cell counts that are coming into the normal range, and that we can we can show that the normal hemoglobin compared to sickle hemoglobin are at the levels that you would see in a patient with sickle trait. Um, and then there are additional things we can measure over time that really kind of further give us confidence in terms of the function of those red blood cells or showing that we can you know, deliver oxygen normally to different organs and different tissues over time. Sickle cell disease is a, a global problem. It's got a higher prevalence in parts of the world where an ex vivo approach may not be feasible. How do you think about delivery and affordability as you design your therapies? Um, I mean, it's it's, that's a, it's a critical point. I mean, there there it's a, this is a com, relatively common disease for a rare genetic disease um, in in developed countries, um, but there are millions of of, of, of patients um, with with sickle cell disease in uh, in countries you know in countries in Africa and, and in India, um, and you know the way we think about bringing these kinds of curative options uh, more broadly is by really uh, making progress on our manufacturing approach approach moving towards a closed uh, closed system um, as we scale up in terms of manufacturing and and, and supply that those, those costs will come down um, the other really really you know key um, advancement that we're, we're we're becoming increasingly focused on is what I mentioned on the conditioning and and the accessibility of these kinds of curative treatments to patients outside of of, um, of, of the us and Europe um, will will be um, will be greatly improved if we can um, do that preparation of the patient and, and the bone marrow conditioning in in a less invasive way. So right now, the standard approach is really to use um, chemotherapeutic uh, bone marrow conditioning, myeloblation, like would be used in another in in in, in, in a transplant procedure, and that means um, you know a stay in the hospital. That means you know advanced, relatively intensive uh, nursing and hospital care, and accounts for a, a significant percentage of the overall cost of the procedure. And what we see, you know, our vision is really a day where we can, um, we can prepare the patient in a, in a, in a simple, you know, outpatient, uh, non-invasive way, give, basically giving an antibody that can remove those diseased stem cells and then give back uh, edited cells that can cure a patient in a way that, that could bring this to more patients in, um, you know, in, in developing countries as well. Are you looking at in vivo approaches at all or? We're certainly looking closely at that field and monitoring that field. It, um, uh, you know, I think it's really, really some of the advancements are really exciting around in, in vivo uh, liver targeting of gene editing 
um, uh, approaches, um, including the, the recent Intelia data. For diseases like sickle cell disease, it's 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 very early days, so it's a, it's it's a very different um, you know very different types of biological hurdles. A lot of biology really to solve and sort out. In if you're thinking about editing stem cells, I mean, finding a stem cell in the bone marrow is like a needle in a haystack. It's it's one in you know one in a million uh, or fewer of the cells in the bone marrow compared to 80% of the cells in the liver uh, when you're targeting those. So um, it's it's early days. Um, the, the other, and, and, and you know, we'll be very interested if we can find the tools that can lead to, you know, full gene correction with an in vivo targeted approach. So I think it's it's really an, kind of an emerging, uh, emerging area. The graphite raised more than 270 million in an IPO in June. That was on top of 150 million venture financing earlier in the year. How are you using that money, and, and how far will it take you? Um, so, um, you know, we're, 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 fortunate to be, to be well capitalized that, that, that cash runway should take us, uh, through 2024. Um, obviously, you know, job, job number one is, is, um, is advancing our, our, our program in, in, in sickle cell disease really rapidly for patients for, for all of the reasons, you know, we, we went over, um, earlier, there's a real, real pressing need for, for these kinds of therapies. Um, so this gives us the resources to advance our sickle cell program, not just to proof of concept, but but you know really into late stage trials and preparing to bring that to patients as a as a as a commercial product, um, as as a as a curative option. Um, and then what what this also lets us do is is really in parallel um, start to advance um, uh, pipeline programs which use the same approach, which which take you know full gene correction. Or gene replacement, or or precise gene integration, and then can offer potentially one-time cures for um, patients in other with other diseases who don't have uh, who don't have curative uh, don't have curative options. So it's really an ability to advance sickle cell, and then the broader platform and pipeline behind that. Josh Lair, CEO of Graphite Bio. Josh, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks very much. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.